Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I'm your host, Brian Karam, and with us today is the former director of administration for Vice President Joe Biden, a Joe Biden confidant, and as I'm finding out, a, who was raised in politics by Ann Richards, which she'll be a topic of discussion at some point in time. I'm uh, very happy to have with us today, Mo Vela. Mo, how you doing? Glad for uh, glad to be Thank here. you, Brian, for having me. It's great to be with you. Well, we're going to take a short break. You've been with me all of 20 seconds. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Hi, and we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and with me is Mo Vela. And Mo, uh, as a former director of administration for the vice president, Joe Biden, and now uh, I'm assuming you're still in contact with President Biden a little bit at some point in time. I guess the question I want to ask you, and since this is just asked the question, I'll just ask you, does he have a hope in hell of, of achieving what he said in his inaugural address uh, that unity in the United States. You know, Brian, I think that one thing I think that I learned from him actually mm -hmm. that I have taken since I worked for him and uh, is what I think is that he's pragmatic and he's clear-eyed. He's always clear-eyed. He's got that steady as she goes approach to life. So I only share that because it's important to, to the answer here. Um, he's, he's, a, he's a realist. He knows this is an incredible task ahead of him. Uh, probably the most um, severe compilation of crises at ever one time for any president of the United I'd States. I'd say at least since FDR, but you at may be right. At least since FDR, that's right. And arguably it could even be worse, right? But yeah. because it's, it's so many have different types, right? So Anyway, regardless, all of them have one source, but <laughs> that is that, that's true. But but here's what what I would say to that. I've been saying this for a while now. If anybody can, it's Joe Biden. And the reason I say that is because I, I share very few kind of personal stories. I, one that I will share with you and your audience right now uh, is a part of the answer. And it was on his first trip to South America as the vice president of the United States. We couldn't have been in more than 30 to 60 days. I can't remember exactly because it was 10 years ago. Uh, but it was, I was the senior Hispanic on his staff and senior advisor uh, to him. So they invited me to accompany him and Dr. Biden on their first trip, right, um, to South America, to Chile and Costa Rica, to Central and South America. Good state. Yeah, and we were on Air Force Two, and I was just getting to know them. 
Uh, and we're all sitting and somehow we all end up, you know how Air Force Two is and Air Force One where there's seating areas where you can sit like on a couch and right. people sit around and just chit chat and talk on these longer flights. He ended up on my left, Brian, somehow. Now I am just now getting to know the Vice President of the United States, right? And so something, because it was my second tenure, I swear to God, I came back a little more confident, a little bit more unfiltered, right? Like right. when I was with Gore, I would like just sit there. I know it's hard to believe, but I was like a wallflower. But <laughs> somehow under Biden, I was just like, felt just comfortable. And he, he, he brings that out, I think, in people. So we're sitting there and there's all the staff talking and some Republican senator who, who I, I think purposely have forgotten who it was. <laughs> I just blurted out that blankety blank blank senator so-and-so. And I mean, I said some nasty words about this Republican senator who was denouncing one of Obama's policies that we had just put out there, right? That I believed so fervently in. Were, were these four letter words, five? <laughs> they were both probably. <laughs> both. Okay, so <laughs> I'm getting the gist of it. <laughs> to this day, I'm not sure what the hell got into me that I would have said that in front of the vice president, right? Who right. I barely knew at the time. But he, with his right hand, I'll, I'll remember it till my last breath, grabs my left forearm. And in front of all my colleagues and Dr. Biden, he says, Mo, you're wrong. And of course, you know, you you work in the White House. Yeah. You know what the president or the vice president tells you you're wrong. You're like, <gasps> exactly. And so I said, oh my God, Mr. Vice President, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to offend you. Uh, and he, I said, but please, I... I, I please correct me, how, how am I wrong about this senator? And he said, that's my friend. He wow. said, we don't always agree on how to make America better, but we do agree that we want to make her better. Wow. And Brian, I've never forgotten that. So to me, if there's anybody I've ever met in my career that has the ability genuinely and authentically to unite factions, it's him. Okay, because he loves you first. As corny as it sounds, yeah. Joe Biden loves you first. Well, then you give him a reason, right? Yes. That's a different ballgame. But the man loves you first. He respects you first. He treats you with dignity first. Well, that's nice to know. Uh, well, I'll say this much. Anybody that can do it, it's him, I'm telling you. McG uh, uh, McGovern. McG <laughs> In Mitch McConnell's office, they even speak uh, kindly of him. And Mitch McConnell speaks kindly of no one except Mitch McConnell. Uh, I mean, he, he was notorious for speaking ill of, 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 of the previous president, even though he carried the water for him on a few occasions. I, I'm chuckling because I'm not, I don't want to say anything bad about McConnell after I just told that story. <laughs> That's what it was about, Mitch McConnell? It, no, it wasn't. It wasn't. Oh. But I'm just, I had like a deja vu for a second there. And I was like, <laughs> Don't say anything bad about the Republican Center. Don't say anything <laughs> bad about the Republicans. <laughs> well, he, a little, it was a reliving a trauma there for a minute. <laughs> well, he, uh, McConnell, I've told this story a few times, uh, um, was the first outside, uh, first politician outside of my family. You and I have, you know, my, my grandfather was the first Lebanese American judge in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, my, my uncles were all involved in politics. And 
So when I was in high school, the, one of the first things I did was interview, one of the first people I interviewed for the, our local newspaper was um, Mitch McConnell. And the oh. day before I went in to interview him, my uncle Pete took me aside and he had worked with him for uh, a few times in the 70s, early 70s, and worked with him. And he said, before you go to interview Mitch McConnell, you have to understand one thing. I go, what's that? And he goes, Mitch McConnell's about one thing. And I go, okay, what? And he goes, Mitch McConnell. <laughs> that hasn't changed since 1978. Wow, that's a, that's a very interesting historic perspective, actually, because you know he's so relevant right now. I mean, he's so enormously relevant. Roger Ailes made him possible. That's an amazing. Yeah. But I will tell you, I mean, the one thing that I, I will say also about Joe Biden on this topic of the ability to unify, it's it's something that since I worked for him 10 years ago, I it's it's really and I'm not going to say that it's all because of him. I think a lot of it was what my parents taught me. And it's also been my own life experience, but he reinforced it in working for him and then becoming my friend. Uh, and that was that like, fundamentally, I believe like he does that everybody is fundamentally good. Okay. And that I think that we owe it to have, each have other. Have you met Donald Trump? Well, <laughs> Just, just well, asking for a friend. Well, uh, I'm just going to say this on behalf of a friend that he might have ruined my entire philosophy. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> it could have been a theory buster, okay? <laughs> I think he's a theory buster. Yeah. <laughs> and I really believe, I really mean that. Joe Biden, I think, sees the good first, you know? Okay. But, but that and aside. That's important what we're trying to unify. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I mean, that's a basis from which you can unify instead of being exactly. divisive, being uh, in, in, you know encompassing. But specifically, what does unity look like? Does it? You had said one of the mistakes that the Biden administration has made is not putting a, a Republican on the cabinet. That aside, there are others saying that if you really want to, <laughs> there are those who say you should not have a Republican on the cabinet because they're all evil. And I, I'm not going down that path because that's wrong. But there, there are others who say, look, if you really want to talk about unity, find a bipartisan bill or something that everyone can agree upon and pass that and show unity. What, do you, think, what do you think the first step should be in demonstrating that we're all in this together? Well, I personally think, and again, these are some very dear friends of mine that are serving in the administration. Right. So. I don't want them to feel like I am in any way disrespecting them because I am their biggest fan and I admire them all for their commitment to right. our country. Um, and I honor their service. But, but personally, I'm entitled to believe that I thought that the one, I thought it was a softball opportunity yeah. to name a Republican in the cabinet. Was it gonna do that? Was it gonna solve it all? No, of course not. Let's not be naive. But every, I believe right now that every word and every deed and every action is going to be watched and measured and evaluated yes. and assessed. And I think as many of those chances that you can get and take the opportunity, right? Right. To just, just cast the line, right? So put a Republican in somewhere that 
And, and I was nodding no, by the way, because I agree with you. I'm not going to go there. Not all Republicans are evil. No. Not all Republicans are bad people. So, And it sounds so cliche. I hate to say it. But Some of my best friends are. <laughs> yes, it's the truth. It's the truth. But, it is but, the truth, yeah. It's the truth. Um, and I just think that's what we've got to do. And that's what the Biden administration has to do every chance you can whether it's legislatively, whether it's on an executive uh, administrative uh, effort, uh, whether it's a, a summit or a forum or a roundtable discussion on racial injustice or race relations or law enforcement and race relations. That's the one thing I know about Joe Biden that I am so confident of. When he does hold that summit or roundtable, watch, there will be law enforcement and there will be Black Lives Matter, and there will be Latino leaders, and there'll be Asian American leaders, and there'll be anybody who feels like they need a chance at the table, he will invite them to the table. And if they say no, he'll keep on until he gets them there. Right. Is that right? white supremacist? He is. So uh, those are the types of things, in my humble opinion, right? I would have liked to have seen them put a Republican in. I thought that would have been a great first sign and signal and a right. shot across the bow, if you will, right? They chose not to. I don't know why. I have no idea. I've not discussed it with anybody. Um, but but anyway, look, they've got a lot of chances to come, Brian, yeah. Uh, yeah. where they get to demonstrate mm -hmm. a genuine, his genuine, because it's, it's genuine for him. So right. they've got a lot of chances to show that authenticity and sincerity and his desire to literally find common ground. What, what, what? Give me an idea of one that you think. I just did. Every round table, every forum, every discussion that. Is he that enough up, or is that just a first step? Oh, I think it's a first step, but I think it's more powerful than people realize. Because let's be honest here. A lot of it is about the optics. Okay. Well, I, I think it's appearance versus reality. There is. There are people, there are white people who believe that what is happening in this country is that they're losing their rights. But really what's happening is they're just, they're just becoming equal with everyone else and they're losing some of their privilege. That they Everybody will, else might be catching up. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that might be yeah. a novel concept. With the, you know, a, kind of a level playing field. Eh, you know. So I, but how do you make, because there are people who are just not going to listen. There are people who are convinced, and I mean, I've talked to, the uh, short story, you know, long story short, covering the insurrection. I, you know, I'm out in, in, at the Capitol and I'm talking to these QAnon people and these white supremacists and they're threatening to kill me. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that stopped one of them from going forward with his plan was when I said, you know, look, I, I work for Playboy magazine and they go, oh, can you get me to a party? <laughs> so, all of a sudden you're the best friend right yeah all of a sudden yeah. so there's yeah. there's common ground somewhere there is uh, listen i'll give you a story i haven't told this story in years but in 1993 i was appointed to serve at the department of agriculture as a political appointee in the clinton administration right mm -hmm. my, my uncle at the time happened to be the chairman of the house agriculture committee kika de la garza right and so they thought let's put the nephew in the Congressional Affairs Office, and we'll get all our budget, right? Well, it kind of backfired because <laughs> on the first meeting, uh, Kika, right, my Tio Kika, we all go up there to have a meeting on the budget, and he says in that beautiful, strong Mexican accent of his, 
If you think having my nephew here is going to help you, you're wrong, he says. <laughs> and I'm like the blood leaves my head. I'm about to lose my job, right? <laughs> anyway, long and short of it is I end up at the Agricultural Marketing Service. This is the answer to what I would recommend the Biden White House, okay? okay. I get appointed to the Agricultural Marketing Service. And the, the, the director of, the, of AMS says to me, as a political, I want you to meet with all eight division heads of every division, fruit and vegetable, cotton, and the, you know, and go on and on and on, right? Poultry, meat, right? And seed, there were all these divisions. And he says, I want you to meet with the heads of all eight of them at one time, and you are going to redo our uh, diversity plan because we don't look like America. Well, I call the first meeting, Brian, and it's eight white people, seven white men with an average of 38 years of federal service and one white woman with 42 years of federal service. That's a lot of dust. <laughs> and I talk about diversity, cultural diversity in recruitment and employment and our workforce. And the looks were like, could kill. They Not could bad. kill, the looks could have killed. And so I, this is what the Biden administration has to do. I realized and learned at the age of 30 at that point, wow, I've got to win them over. And I got to win them over on their, in their comfort zone. So I went and got with the, the director of the cotton division. No, I don't remember which, poultry. He was first. His name was Mike. He's now deceased. So I can talk about him. But I, I went in, I went and had coffee with him. And I found out his favorite thing to do was to golf. So I said, what are you doing Saturday? We played a round of golf. By the time we laughed together, by the time we talked about our families together, by the talk, time he realized that I honored his service to our nation and that I respected his contribution to our government and our people, he was ready to recruit anywhere I needed him to. The next weekend, fishing with the guy that ran the other department. And you get the picture. Yeah. That's what, it sounds trite and it sounds no, so- it's finding so common tall, interest. That's what has to happen. You gotta go to the folks that, like you said, some of them, I'm, I'm convinced of this. There is a faction never gonna change their mind. Right, you can't- But there, them. But there are plenty of them who can and who will, if they are approached correctly, if they feel seen and they feel heard, right? right? And they feel respected for their concerns. I don't agree, may not agree with their concerns. Right. But they do have the right to express their concerns, not with an AK-47 or an insurrection, right? right. but in a mutually respectful, right? Civil right. discourse kind of way. Yeah. And I think that's what has to happen. We have to talk to each other again. We got to learn that it's okay in a democracy to disagree. In fact, that's what a democracy is. That's how it works, <laughs> honestly. So but I think it's communication. I think it's finding common ground. And I think it's all of us getting off our high horses and, uh, and coming back to each other and saying, let's just talk. Can we just talk? You know? Well, that's when you talk about everyone get. <clears throat> I hear the word cancel culture, or I hear the word uh, a false equivalency. Um, but the, 
fact of the matter is, and look, I, I firmly said my whole life, I, even if, you know, if I can't question you and I believe what you believe, then perhaps my beliefs aren't worth a pill of spit. Those that I admire and those I like, I'm going to question them harder. So, I mean, so for what it's, for what it's worth, I'm not coming at this attacking the left or the right, but I do see that, that politics has become so, uh, so there's such a gap between us and the divisiveness is such that the far left and the far right, essentially, you can't talk them out of their, you know, the far left is just as bad sometimes. I agree with you. I agree with you. 150%. You can go back and roll all the tape of the over 500 uh, interviews I've done in the last 14 months. Go back to the primaries when I was denouncing socialism, because to me, that extremism is just as bad as this Trumpism. Okay? Well, I don't even think we define the terms right anymore. I mean, it, it, I mean, look, I don't think that's going to get hate mail for having just said that. Well, that's all right. Yeah, I believe that too. I mean, but I, I go back to, I don't know that people understand what it is they're arguing, what it, what, you know, when they say socialism, do they understand that there are some socialist parts of the country? I mean, you know, roads, schools, and and like we have socialism for the rich and capitalism for the poor, but we're never going to be a socialist as you know like the way people believe socialism you know the bad socialism nor are we ever going to be a communist nation we like money too much so it's we're a capitalist society and i don't think that's going to change yeah see my problem brian was with that whole thing about the socialism kind of that kind of faction in the democratic party yeah i know where you're talking about my concern for that was always that i it's punitive they come across as punitive in nature. Yes, and I, that's, I'm not comfortable with that. I don't think you have to bring people down in order to raise people up. Do people have to be paid their thing? That's, that's not, the- and that doesn't mean I'm saying that the rich don't have to pay their fair share of taxes. That's a different argument. That means right. let's reform our tax structure. Let's have a fair tax structure. That's different. But to be punitive and say, then why are children, what would children aspire to, Brian? We aspire to the American dream. So yeah. you can make it look like it's bad to be successful. You don't want to like castigate and demonize success. I'm not going to participate in that. Not right? But at the same time, we know we've got to, uh, what did we say today? You and I were, were together earlier today. What did I say? You're only as good on a football team as your weakest player. We're going to talk about that. <laughs> I uh, first of all, th- since you brought that up, I have found that people I work with best in in business and in life are people who played a team sport, and usually it's football. Because That's an observation, the pe- they understand <clears throat> that you're part of something bigger than yourself. That's right. That's right. And That's I remember right. one of the things my coaches in, uh, in high school told me: he said you may not like that guy next to you, but you don't have to like him. You have to work with him. So that's you exactly work right. Your butt off for the team. And well, you might have, we might, you and I might have just solved the whole mystery of what does the Biden administration need to do for unity? Join a football team. You may not <laughs> like them. Well, you may not like them, but you got to learn to work with them. Yeah, and that may sure. be the magic phrase. Yeah, right? that I, I well, that's exactly what my coach said. All and I look and you know I that's why I asked you when you brought that up because I have found that over my life that that's 
really, you know, the, the people who played individual sports or didn't play at all, you know, the ones that were always picked last for kickball, kind of like Stephen Miller, maybe. But, you know, those kind of <laughs> that never really got it. I can't say a word, remember, because. Yeah. <laughs> well, eh, I'll leave the pit. I'll, I'll take care of it. <laughs> I had to deal with that for four years in the White House, let me tell you. But um, that kind of working together despite differences is what I find is lacking in today's politics. No doubt about it. No so, doubt about it. And you still have you still have some folks trying. You do. Right. Like, you know, in the Senate, I the Senate's a real good, to me, it's like a good experimental lab, right? To uh, right. to assess all of this that we're talking about. You you you'll see somebody dabble once in a while and a just try a little bipartisan something, right? Uh, you know, so there's still a little glimmer of hope. I'll, I'll give you better than that. Jim Jim Jordan and Jamie Raskin co-sponsored a bill to help out reporters and a federal shield law so that we don't have to give up our confidential sources. Now, you talk about two people that are as far apart on the political spectrum as possible, and it's Raskin and, and Jordan. And hell, they had, they had Mike Pence behind them, too, and they still couldn't get it passed. But there, there's an example of people working together. It can happen. It will happen again. I predict that it will happen again. I really do. And I think that Joe Biden will lead by example. And I think I, I said it before. I will say it every day of my life if I have to. You have to be hard pressed to not like Joe Biden. <laughs> Well, I'm going to recommend something for the Joe Biden administration that comes straight out of South Texas. If you want people to work together, a little barbacoa, come on over to the house. Oh, uh, that's not a bad idea. Have, have a couple I'll of have it shipped up if you want. I'll have it shipped up from South yeah, Texas. Just have a few, Bill Miller, you know. <laughs> but have, Bill Miller's barbecue. Yeah, I, I still have for a those month. who are listening and don't know, it's Bill Miller's barbecue from San Antonio, Texas. Yeah. Is, a tradition in San Antonio. Yeah, right? it is a tradition. But just a, a neighborhood barbecue or at least getting people together when they're not. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Maybe we got to go to, back to that grassroots level where we have to do it on the local level where you begin this, you know, ability, as we said, to build these bridges and, 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 and come back together again and again engage in civil discourse. Well, you know, there was a place in the Capitol after five o'clock where all the senators and congressmen would congregate and they closed it. And that was, a, that I think that what was- What was the name of that place? Um, I can't say it without, uh, under penalty of death. But, oh, <laughs> but no, I mean, it, it was like the Capitol Club or whatever. And it was-, it was uh, well, There was the a restaurant too on the Senate oh, yeah. side yeah. where everybody would go That's, to. to that, yeah. And they would just relax, kick back a little bit, no press around, or if there was, it was trusted and nobody was saying anything. And people just, they played poker, they had a drink, they talked to one another. Yes. And, you know, there's something to be said. I, I don't recommend that all, you know, business is done in the back room. But when you get to know someone personally, it's a little harder. It matters. Yeah, I think it, it matters. Does. And that goes back to my Air Force Two story. Because yeah. those friendships and those relationships were were meaningful connections. You see, it wasn't just I'm a Democrat. Oh, he's a Republican. They developed real friendships, like John McCain and yeah, Joe yeah. Biden, right? And, and and so many others. Teddy Kennedy with John McCain too. Yeah, several yeah. of them, right? Yeah. And 
uh, you know, they could, they would be like you said, at that place near the Senate and they'd go have dinner or a drink or private yeah. meeting. And then they, the next morning they'd be on the floor going after each other, but yeah. never lost that fundamental connection that they had as two people first. Yeah. I go back to Tip O'Neill when I, when I was interviewing Tip O'Neill and he, uh, I asked him about Ronald Reagan and he goes, you know, he, he was talking about what a stain he was on the presidency and how he didn't like Ronald Reagan and what a problem he was. He goes, that's between nine and five. After five o'clock, we're sharing a drink and we're just a couple of Irishmen telling stories. There you go. And that we don't have that anymore. No, Not we don't have that. We're we going to take a, we're going to take a short break. Okay. About that and we'll be right back. Well, time to pay the bills, folks. And this one I, I don't mind doing. If <laughs> Actually, I've actually used this. If this 2020 holiday season feels like it's been a long time, come and make it worth the wait with Omaha Steaks. Omaha Steaks makes the perfect gift for family and friends or to treat yourself. All shipped directly to your door. They offer everything you need to bring families together for a delicious holiday feast. Okay, or maybe not. Maybe just a delicious festival. Uh, their deluxe grillers assortment package includes a variety of entrees, sides, and desserts. Right now, you can get this mouth-watering package. I, I've never actually seen a mouth water. Oh, well, anyway, plus four free burgers and a free digital meat thermometer. And we all need a good meat thermometer. And exclusive price only available to uh, our listeners. So go to omahasteaks.com and enter the code QUESTION into the search bar. Get a jump on gift shopping with Omaha Steaks. You know, Omaha Steaks isn't just a steak. It, it's actually a, a lot of them. It's a fantastic gift and a safe way to share the joy of the season with Omaha Steaks, guaranteed quality and safety with every order. <laughs> order the Deluxe Grillers assortment package today and you'll receive four free Omaha Steak burgers and a free digital meat thermometer. That's just a great straight line I won't use. When you go to omahasteaks.com and type question in the search bar, that's omahasteaks.com and type question and if you need to spell it as q-u-e-s-t-i-o-n in the search bar and you'll shop for the best gourmet gifts of the season i i like a good raw steak so uh, enjoy it it is a lot of fun hi we're back it's just ask the question i am your host brian karam and with us today is movela a former uh well, I guess a director of the administration for Biden and a member of the Biden team in the past. And, the, and a, can we call you a democratic operative? It sounds something like. In well, Gitt you know, Brian, you can call me anything you want. <laughs> hey, now, wait a minute. <laughs> just don't call me late for dinner. That's, yeah, just, okay. <laughs> that's, that's my, that's, that's my line. Call me anything you want. Just don't call yeah. me late for dinner. Uh, um, so where do you think, I, I guess the, the big question going forward is, if you're sitting there talking to Joe Biden today, where would you tell him he, you think he should be 100 days in? I think that it has to be almost completely around getting control of this virus and getting people vaccinated. Uh, that's what I would say to him. I, I think that if we can accomplish uh, the some actual gain ground on getting control of the virus and vaccinating millions and millions of people, that in a hundred days, 
I think he will gain so much confidence from the American people because Brian, it'll, it'll lower that anxiety and that stress. And I, I'm, I'm not a psychologist, right? But I have to tell you, I can't help but believe that that underlying anxiety, the stress is contributing to a lot of this anger that's percolating. I believe and that. I believe it's contributing to the division too. I really do. I believe now, that. Trump made it a political issue with the masks. I, I think Trump took advantage to of it. I think that 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 discord was there. And rather than trying to ameliorate concerns, he hyped them so he could prey on the fear and Absolutely. the anger. Of, and, and so I, I blame Trump for a lot of that. I do too. He came down that escalator. He came down that escalator yeah. with that game plan that you just described. And yeah. he did it till the very end. Fear mongering, fear mongering, well, dividing people based on some category. I, I would get so angry with, right? Yeah, I would get so angry when people say, oh, he's just talking. Oh, that's just him. I'm going, no, you listen to him. You know who he is. September right. 23rd, I asked him if he would accept win, lose, or draw, a peaceful transfer of power. He couldn't do it. People were like, golly gee, can you believe? Yes, he said it. That he, was, he said in September 23rd, there was going to be an insurrection. He would not accept the results unless he won. So, yeah, I would say listen to him. He always told you who he was. My oh, he aunt, did? God bless you. you. She was right. When people and, and, you, and this listen is, to him. Yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, that's all right. This, this is why I still uh, call this a phenomenon. Because I can't – I've tried for four years to come up with every possible rationale or reason why people that otherwise had been pretty reasonable, <laughs> that had been pretty rational, right? right. That had actually been um, somebody I could actually go out and have dinner with. Somehow they all lost all semblance of reality. They lost their freaking mind. I mean, I- I don't get it, Brian. I don't, it's a phenomenon. Psychologists a and social workers, in my opinion, are going to be evaluating and assessing it for decades to come because I think it. Well, I, in that I, sense, Donald Trump was good for the uh, for the economy. For that sector, <laughs> yeah. for that sector, he can <laughs> keep him in business for years. years. But I mean, I'm going to go somewhere that I probably shouldn't go because I know it's going to give me a go lot ahead. of hate. Go ahead. But, but no, but I mean, it has to be said, and it's been said many times, and I'm not saying it for the first time by any means. But it's the same psycho psychological evaluation and um, and mental evaluation and assessment we do about Hitler. Yeah, I know. And how he meticulously, judiciously, de deliberatively, everything he said, everything he did was all for a, a an end goal. Yeah. Well, I, and this man is. I'm sorry. I. I very similar pattern, Brian. Yeah, I don't disagree. But and and but my concern, honestly, is not for Donald Trump. He's seventy four years old. He, I don't think oh, he's going to run. I don't think he's going to run for in twenty twenty four. I think he that's can't run from prison. So you yeah, can't run he, your prison, so. I can't. That's, I think that he's done. What I'm concerned about is the smarter, younger demagogue and desperate. Yes. 
And this is part of the phenomenon to me. Friends, These are college-educated. Some of them are they offer bright as hell. To bring families yeah. together. They're smart people. Smarter than Trump. When you go to HomahaStakes.com yeah, and, and type they fall in the search bar. That's but you see, Omaha remember, Hitler also convinced and attracted and resonated with smart people, too. In the search bar. Yeah, this is much bigger than... Any uh, one I, I of like us can figure out. Steak, I think so, there's a psychology. Uh, it. it is a lot of fun. there's some hey, something that has to be figured listeners. out about the if brain got a second, head on and over to mental health and, and the way we think page, and what actually for all can get us to leave our fundamental values and principles. How can one human being lead you to that place of darkness? That's what I want the question answered, but nobody can answer it. Well, that's, that's what happened. They were all led to darkness. Yeah. Oh, well, I don't think it was. I'll be honest with you. I think some were led to darkness, but I think some of them lived their lives in darkness. And it was Donald Trump who gave them the light and gave them attention. That's, that that's a really have. excellent point, actually. Yeah. And, you know, and I think I'm not referring to them, to be honest yeah. with you. Okay. So I'm referring to those honestly let's use the republicans in congress as an example because they're a sure. perfect example yeah they know better they should know yeah you some know them, you're right some of them have benefited from they it clearly don't know better they yeah. should have known better some i mean i think mitch mcconnell didn't realize either i think mitch tried to play trump trump played mitch and in the end mcconnell uh you know outlasted him but i mean he mcconnell played trump for the judges some of the members of Congress played, jumped on the Trump train. So they they saw that their they could isolate a constituency that had money and they could get reelected that way. So it was their own personal fortune. Power. They never really power. bought Trump. Yeah. They bought the power. power. And there, yeah. yeah. And, and then there are those who are the honest to God believers and who still believe to this day that yeah. Donald Trump won the election and that we all cheated to make sure that he didn't win. And, and that he was sent by God. God. Yeah. So you you grew up in South Texas, you Catholic boy? I grew up Catholic. Yeah. Uh, about the about the age of 21 or 22. Yeah, no, I'm I'm very open about this. You know, I think when you for 21 years you hear that because you're gay, you're gonna burn in hell, and that you're that it's that it's wrong at some point you realize, you know, I don't think I want to attend a church that doesn't believe in me as a person, right? Well, so I left the church, right? But, you know, I, I, I do get... Well, I'm hell, very Mo, they told you if you masturbated, you were going to hell. Well, well Brian left. I was, I was out of that church by nine or ten, baby. <laughs> wow, that's an early start. But that's yeah. all... <laughs> Maybe too much information. But <laughs> definitely TMI. Yeah. No doubt about it. But, but yeah, you know, but I... I, feel I, you. <laughs> I left the church, yeah, because, I mean, honestly, I... But my, you know, point, my, you, my point in asking you, if I can, I'm sorry, I didn't... Yeah. But my hmm. point in asking you is, you and I grew up in a Catholic faith, and the Catholics are very, I mean, remember the John Kennedy's saying he had a contingency of, uh, contingency of bishops and nuns to see him. And he said, make, make the bishops wait. They all vote Republican anyway. I mean, it's a very conservative bunch and they're the ones that believe in God. And you got Mike Pompeo, who's a very conservative Catholic, 
who, and, and it's the evangelicals that believe in God. And I don't understand how they can believe in God and equate Donald Trump with God. I, it don't make no sense to me. I mean, did they read uh, the I, same Bible I did? <laughs> you might have heard me say this before. I don't know, but I am at a point where, and I'm very, very, very honest about this. Whether it's a, a Hindu friend, a Buddhist friend, a Muslim friend, a Christian, a Jew, a Catholic, whatever it is, if they equate their higher being and their religious beliefs and say that Donald Trump is okay in the eyes of their religious beliefs, I simply say to them, I don't have any interest in knowing your God. Because if your God is okay with everything this man has said and done, then I'm not okay with that God. It's yeah. that simple. Uh, your imaginary man in the sky is full of shit. <laughs> yeah. if, if they're okay with that, yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I'm perfectly fine not believing at all. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. Tell me, uh, you know, you bring it up. I mean, growing up Catholic, uh, outside linebacker in high school, we found that out earlier, which I just love. Uh, outside linebacker, <laughs> growing up gay in, in South Texas, that had to be, uh, I, I mean, I know the culture in South Texas as well. That had to be difficult. Was it? Or the, 19, I... the 1960s, it's important to add that. And it's important yeah. to probably add one more thing, which was my father was, uh, you know, and my uncle were uh, pretty uh, well known. Our family was, were kind of leaders in the community, judges right. and lawyers and such. And so you have to add that too, because it was like growing up almost in the public eye. So I, I don't know that I could have had a more perfect storm. Um, and so, frankly, the vast majority of my childhood, uh, I wrote a book. It's called Little Secret, Big Dreams, because I wanted to share the challenges and the anxieties uh, of growing up with your secret. Uh, wow. Because I wasn't able to even, I knew though, Brian, in a very strange way at the age of seven, I already knew I was gay, but I knew I couldn't say it, be it, do it, live it, express it. I knew I couldn't. So I did everything a Texas boy was supposed to do. Outside linebacker, baseball, basketball, hunting, fishing. L loved it all, by the way. Ironically, I loved it all. Um, and, and I excelled at sports. Um, you know, but I had to live in an imprisonment. And uh, when I decided at the age of 17 that this juxtaposition wasn't, the locker room wasn't working for me anymore. Like, Right. I couldn't, I couldn't deal with this locker room situation. So I realized to just survive, I had to like get out of sports. Well, the football players turned on me, my friends of all my youth. And so every day in my junior year of high school, they would wait outside my classes and call me a faggot every day for six months of my life, Jeez. every day. And I contemplated taking my life in my junior year of high school, I came very close to committing suicide. But something, something inside, something inside, I, I to this day, I can't tell you what it was, but something said, no, no, you, there's a reason for you to stay here, right? Like there's a purpose for you. And, um, and you know, lo and behold, I went on to make a little bit of American history, not much, but a little bit. Uh, knocked down some glass, shattered some glass ceilings and knocked down some doors in the White House. And, 
And, and, you know, um, keep to this doing day, it, brother, keep doing it. You know, look, I, I share the story. I wrote the book on purpose. Cause if I could save one person's life, it was, it's worth it. Right. The one person's like, cause there's some kid right now, some adult that might be watching your podcast. And they don't come What what, you know, I've talked with friends and I had friends growing up who could not confront those feelings. That's right. And w- when I would say, look, you're my friend, no matter what, I don't, you know, I, I, I one time remember famously telling somebody, I don't care if you came to me and told me you're going to marry your, your rose bush. Doesn't matter me. Whatever you want to do is, is, is you, that's you. I'll do me. You do you. And you're still my friend. I, I, I can't understand. So that was always difficult for me to, to understand people that would just, I, Usually the ones that were closeted and the most or, or the most angry were the most closeted. I, I found well, now that you, you know, you allowed me to share this such a personal story. I got to close it off for your listeners on this story because 20 years later, no, not 20, uh, the t- 14 years later, I become the youngest chief financial officer to the vice president of the United States, Al Gore and his senior advisor on LGBTQ and Latino affairs, right? And I'm in the White House and I fly home with my partner at the time. uh, And we fly home to Little Harlingen where I grew up. And I had a a good gay man that I am. I had too many bags to carry on. So I had to check them. (laughs) And so I'm waiting at the baggage thing, right? Carousel. And the baggage porter comes over with his little cart. And it was one of the four football players who called me a faggot every day. <laughs> he grabs my bag and he sees a White House luggage tag. Mo Vela, the White House. And he goes, Mo! <laughs> Love and you too, I, brother. <laughs> I didn't hug him. And I just said, you know what? It's good to see you again. Could you please make sure those bags get to that van right over there? Ah. And he took all the bags to the van. And it was the one moment, I'm not really a spiteful person. I'm not a revenge type guy. But it was a moment where I felt like it was justice had to prevail. And it was the greatest moment I didn't tip him. Ah. And it was like my one little moment. You bastard. (laughs) Yeah, I just was like, you know, man. No, yeah, that's right. Well, (laughs) let me ask you one other question before we go to our second break here. You lived in South Texas, and for years, I covered what was it, when I first started covering these uh, these things. They were called illegal subdivisions. We know them as colonias. Colonias, yes. And um, Rio Bravo and El Ceniso down on the border of where I was the first one to write about them. Wow, uh, many years ago. I had no idea. Yeah, and, and in fact, it, there was it. Uh, we could talk about that for hours. We but- could. And by the way, not to not to. I don't want to get you off track. Yeah. I, I took Al Gore down there as vice president to a colonia. Yeah, that's, well, the first one I covered, El Ceniso on the border and Rio Bravo, they were, they were helping to bring illegal immigrants into the U.S. and selling them land that they didn't own mm. for $100 a down uh, and then $100 a month on an open-ended contract for their lives. It was like an enormous amount to those folks. Yes, and, but... I recently went back down there and it was this whole border has changed in, in the last, first of all, there's not caravans coming over at any moment. That's a crock. But um, the, one thing I saw that was disheartening and uh, was the amount, it's still, the poverty is horrible, but during the coronavirus, 
I, there are so many underreported people because they're homeless, because they're from the immigrant community. And I just wonder if we're going to ever know the true scope of how this virus, this pandemic has hurt those people in the colonias and in the poor areas and Harlingen has a lot of, of that. The whole valley does, Brian. Yeah. I don't think we'll ever know the exact numbers to your point, but what we do know is that Latinos have been disproportionately impacted. And so I think you can take the data that we do have when it comes to Latinos being impacted by coronavirus. And I think you can extrapolate very easily and probably very accurately to know, to account for the fact that there is a good chunk of folks that are not accounted for um, through these unincorporated colonias that you reference, other pockets of extreme poverty uh, where I grew up down on the border in South Texas. And I'm very proud, I, I, now that we're talking about South Texas, I'm very proud of the work that my cousin is the congressman from the 24, 24th district, 26, I don't know which district. <laughs> I never can remember the number, but Big Brownsville. Yeah, yeah. Brownsville, Harlington, all the way up to Limon yeah. Bella. I'm very proud of my cousin and I'm proud of my brother, who's the CEO of the hospital system down there, Valley Baptist Hospital Center. And on the front lines right now during the coronavirus. So you just touched on an issue very dear to the Vela family, right? With my brother fighting on the front right. lines, cousin fighting in Congress. Um, and of course, I'm probably the slacker here of the three, but- you <laughs> Do know. you find it offensive when, you know, it's like they're, Look, having lived down there for years and worked down there, I personally found it offensive. So if you if you don't understand, if you do, I understand. But I found it offensive to have the president of the United States tell me that the alien hordes were coming over any day to take away our way of life, and that they're lazy and don't want a job at the you know. But at the same time, they you know they're taking all the good jobs. And 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 by the way, every immigrant family I've ever interviewed, and I mean not bar none all ascribe to the ideals and the dreams of America. So what the f I find it so overwhelmingly offensive. I get a little emotional because I think people forget something really important. Um, do you really think that a mother or a father would grab their children trek a thousand, two thousand miles, risk being raped and beaten and tortured by coyotes. Do you think that they do that because they want to come and take our jobs? They're doing that for the same reason that any parent better do for their child, which is merely survival. Yeah. So that that child has a better future than they do. And if you can't understand that, Donald Trump and his followers, you can't understand that, then honestly, you're inhumane. You lack fundamental humanity. Now, am I saying an open border? Don't come at me with that crap. That's right. not what I'm talking about. No one is. Okay, no one is. And they go there because again, fear, fear, fear. There is nothing to fear. The fact of the matter is, as Joe Biden already put in that executive order, we got to go down there and figure out why they're leaving. Do you think they want to leave their country? We don't want to leave our country. 
part of it is our all it's we're worth we're the blame for it if you look at they don't we, and the drugs that we buy yeah. by the way well okay it goes back to, to this problem well we created it it's our foreign policy in central and south america that created the banana republics and uh, there's, you know, there's, uh, I can't remember the uh, Marine who wrote the book back in the 20s and 30s about, you know, indefinite war and how we created that situation it hasn't changed in 100 years. So um, the bottom line is they're not coming over in hordes. No. They never have been coming over. And they're in coming hordes. over less than they were in the 80s when I was covering the, the border. And I'll tell you. Yeah, I mean, I grew up there. That was yes. that, my entire life, my whole foundation of my life. Right. We would go back and forth. We don't have you. You did yeah. that when you worked yeah. in Laredo. You go have lunch in, in Nuevo Laredo or I'd go lunch in my yes. <laughs> Just come right back. It was such a beautiful way of life. But there was nobody taking each other's jobs. There was no. And this is all fundamentally, in my opinion, fundamentally, this is all driven by a for uh, some. Um semblance of racism well it, it is. is rooted in racism it, it is plain and simple in my eyes the the one story that did it for me then we will go to break the one story that i remember i was 24 years old i was covering uh the border and there were they were <clears throat> fishing some uh, illegal aliens out of of the rio grande who had drowned and usually didn't drown because it's you know you know well in, in the Laredo area it's it's knee deep it's it's hip yeah. people walk across, but the coyotes had gotten a hold of these people, and had killed them, and there was a mother who had been her head was bashed in and she had apparently drowned or died right on the banks, and her two year old daughter was holding on to her when 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 the border patrol came and found them and she was crying. And uh, it, all I could hear her say was mama, mama. And I, if you cannot hold out any kind of feeling yeah. for people. If who that doesn't impact that, you, then something's wrong with you, Brian. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's, that's where I've been on this for 40 years. If, if, if you can't feel any compassion, empathy, or love in those stories, something's wrong with you. And yeah. if your God is okay with that, I will end this segment by saying, I don't want to know your God again. If your God's okay with that, get away from me. You're toxic. You're toxic. And we're going to take a short break on that note. We'll be, <laughs> we'll be right back. Hey, Just Ask the Question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, J-A-T-Q Podcast. That's J-A-T-Q Podcast. Again, that's at J-A-T-Q Podcast. Hi, and we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. I'm your host, Brian Karam, and it's a joy having uh, Mo Vela with us today. Mo, I just enjoy getting to know you, so we're going to take this last little uh block and get to know you a little bit better so oh if, if I'm, know, even i'm worried <laughs> so if if you're uh sitting in a desert island and you have electricity what albums are you taking with you oh my god now brian i announced earlier i was openly gay and very comfortable as a gay man yeah. of course i'm taking bet midler Cher, and barbara streisand hello 
<laughs> All right, rock and roll. By the way, I like that Midler and Barbara Streisand. <laughs> well, Kelly Osborne uh, is a dear uh, friend of mine. She's like my little sister. So I think Ozzy would be very upset if I didn't take Black Sabbath with me, even though I cannot handle listening to it. <laughs> I was uh, I was in him and Sharon's home uh, a, a couple of years ago, and uh, as I was, they were showing me uh, all of his, uh, you know, gold records or whatever. There, he has this incredible basement that the whole walls, all the walls, are covered with all of his. Uh, what do you call them? Gold records or whatever, yeah, right? or platinum or whatever. Yeah, platinum or whatever. And I would just, I had to just smile and nod because I was like. I don't know the name of that song. Oh, shit. Oh, my God. I've never heard that one either. And I was just going from one to the other going, I don't have any clue. <laughs> so, okay, just in honor of Kelly, I'd say, I'd take Black Sabbath. How's that? <laughs> Fajitas or carne asada? Oh, my God. Fajitas. Yes. As long as I have tortillas and maíz. Tortillas, maíz, harina. Uh, no, no I, I'm gluten intolerant, so it has to be maíz. Yeah. If, yeah. if they're or, I'll never, or I'll never make it back off the island. <laughs> <laughs> well, if maize, if the corn tortillas are made right, they're better than the flour. I agree with you, especially right off of the comal. Yeah. The, the right uh, with some butter and a little salt. Oh my god. Yeah. There's nothing better. Jalapenos, yeah, so with a little bit of queso fresco, and uh, yeah, and a little salsa. Yes. Yes. What about uh, uh, jalapenos? Yes or no? No, for me, honestly, on yeah. nachos, on nachos, uh, a few, a few, but I'm not a big jalapeno guy. I once watched a guy at a jalapeno eating festival in San, yeah, in Laredo, ate like 58 of them in oh, no, five no. minutes. I can't, I don't know how he lived. I cherish life. I would not. <laughs> so what's your guilty pleasure uh, when it comes to food? Yeah. Oh, food. I was about to reveal gambling. <laughs> well, that works too. I guess if you eat some chips. I need to hear the food, so I'm like gambling. <laughs> What's oh, the under on that? That's so funny. <laughs> well, remind me not to play poker with you. Yeah. <laughs> um, play. So, Can you teach me? What now? I've never played. Can you teach Guilty me? pleasure with food. Yeah. Um, let's see. Wow. Oh, French fries. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Oh, heavens. I mean, I'm, I now only eat 1600 calories a day and walk two miles a day and I eat only healthy now, but, but in the past life, it was definitely French fries. Let's just put it this way. I got this way because of French fries. Okay. <laughs> so you want to know, speaking of this, right. Yeah. I'm working on this. I, I just realized I had an epiphany about last week where I realized that of all the shame I've had of being overweight for the first time now with the coronavirus and the vaccines, being fat might save my life because I get the vaccine a little earlier. Yeah, that's right. That's what I'm saying anyway. <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in 1B. I'm in 1B. <laughs> I have cholesterol. Can you give me a shot? I swear to God, I am contemplating walking into the pharmacy with a sign that says obesity. <laughs> I've got, I'm going to have one that says morbidly obese, just to be safe. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, I'm like, excuse me. I'm just going to cut the lock. Excuse me. 
Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm morbidly obese. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, thank you. You're just regular obese. I get morbid. French fries. French fries are are my guilty pleasure. And tell us something about yourself that you have. You you know, I know you've done a lot of interviews, but you haven't told anyone that you that we would love to hear. Well, I kind of revealed it a minute ago. I don't think people realize how much I love to gamble. I really, I've never talked about it. Really? I've never said it in an interview ever in my life. Um, I don't even know that I referenced it in my book, to be honest really? with you. My, my book was a tell-all, I thought. <laughs> really, it wasn't. So you're um, a degenerate gambler, is that? Right? Yes, yes, and you want to know, and all. I'm going to turn something funny into a little bit of a, more serious life lesson honestly in the spirit of because I believe that we always have to live authentically and we have to be vulnerable because I think that's what bonds us as human beings so in the spirit of being truthful um, the pandemic actually helped me overcome what was probably becoming a little bit of a problem wow. I was gambling a little bit too often and when I was gambling I was gambling with um with 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 a losing a little bit of control, I wasn't quite. I don't think in a serious place of problem, but I was headed there. And so, you know, Mama used to tell me growing up, "From all bad can come some good." Yes. So for me, that's one of the Trump administration come from it. Yeah, this yeah. this 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 prohibition or this inability to go gamble has actually made me realize that I'm. I'm just fine without it. And that was a beautiful lesson that's come out of this horrific and tragic time period. You know, I, I don't mind gambling myself. I'm usually am a poker player, but I, I, during the beginning of this pandemic, I put together a, a documentary and we drove cross country right after the initial lockdown last, I think it was early March. Yeah. And um, I, if, if you've ever been to Vegas, the most, sobering sight. I can't even answer that. Yeah, yeah, right. If you've ever been to Vegas in the last year, uh, <laughs> in the last 10 minutes, um, it was seeing the strip empty. Shut oh, down. Completely mm. shut down. I know that would be a sight to behold, really. I, and uh, I, I'll never forget that. And I've been, you know, to a few places on the planet and I never thought I would see. A ghost it. town. Oh my yeah. God. Vegas is a ghost so town. Uh, so over the top vibrant, right? Yeah. To go from over the top vibrant to shut Nothing. down. I can't even imagine what that must have looked. The like. only place open was the McDonald's. <laughs> God love them. Yeah, I, I mean, come the apocalypse, it's going to be Keith Richards and cockroaches and McDonald's. And McDonald's. <laughs> that's, that's all that's going to survive. Uh, well, listen, Mo, I appreciate your time. I'd love to have you back anytime if you're. If you're up, well, Brian, it's been nothing less than a pleasure. It really has been. Thank you. Um, I appreciate it. And I hope that uh, I hope our conversation in some way empowers somebody. I right? do too. I hope so. Believe too. in themselves and remember each per, each of us, every single one of us is unique and worthy. That is the most important lesson of all. I hope that they get from our conversation. You're unique. You're worthy. Every one of you. And have a laugh every once in a while. Oh, we did plenty of that. And yeah. I'll come back just for the laughter. How's that? That, that sounds good. The name of the Thank show is Just Ask the Question. Thank you, Mo, for being with us. And we'll catch you My pleasure. next Thank time. You. Thank you.